end of a series, I can't figure it out yet, uh, called Broken Colors, which is I've been going through uh, the news cycle of the week and trying to either juxtapose that or support that with whatever is going on the news uh, during that week. Um, and so this week, we had a pretty intense week. Uh, we had, uh, on Tuesday, it was Juneteenth, which is uh, the sort of national recognition of the end of slavery in our nation. And then on Wednesday, it was National Refugee Day. Uh, and then we all know what's happening on our southern border and all the craziness that's going on uh, there. So I just thought, what's the common theme in all of these? Uh, and it just struck me that freedom and liberation uh, is the theme that's going through. And the weirdest part is that almost every single one of the lectionary texts, so it's about four texts a week, and they pull from all sorts of different angles in scripture, all four of them had to do with this idea. And then sometimes, you know, it, it all lines up to the way that you're like, oh, this God thing is actually real. So uh, <clears throat> we're going to trust that this morning. Um, but before we get into this, uh, we're gonna, yeah, we'll talk about some heavy stuff, but we'll also talk about um, uh, bees and proximity and how my father-in-law broke my balcony. So let's pray, and then we'll get into that. <laughs> there we go. Lord, um, gosh, thank you so much for this, uh, this space, this time that we have together. I just... Um, I'm struck as I look around the room, uh, just struck with the journey uh, that we've been on as a community, that you started uh, this little place, and that, um, that we're a community, and that we're thriving, and that we're having a blast doing this thing called church, um, and learning more about you, and worshiping you. Uh, I pray that we would just be acutely aware of your presence in this room, that we're not doing this alone. That as we uh, listen to these words, as we participate in this conversation, that you are in it, you're with it, and you're guiding us. Um, so we're paying attention, Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, so if we're going to talk about the idea of liberation, we kind of have to go all the way back to the beginning. So we'll have three hours this morning. We'll get you out of here by like 2 p.m. It'll be great. Um, no, we're going to go back to the beginning to a book called Exodus. So if you open up your Bibles, the first thing you're going to see is a book called Genesis, and then you'll see Exodus. And what Bible scholars will tell you, which I am not, uh, but a Bible scholar will tell you that Genesis is really kind of the warm-up for Exodus. So if we're looking at kind of the beginning of the story of the people of God, of Israel, and then actually the beginning of our story as people that now follow that God uh, and the Christ, we have to look at this one key story in Exodus. So what Genesis does is it kind of lines up the entire story. Uh, from creation all the way to this guy named Joseph, and how we got this tribe called Israel, and then these 12 tribes called Israel, and how we eventually ended up in Egypt. And then, at the start of Exodus, the end of Genesis, we're free. Like, the, this nation called Israel is, is operating within Egypt in a famine, so everything's going great, they're coexisting. But then when we open up the book of Exodus... It says there's a pharaoh, which means there's a new sort of king in town, a new emperor in town, and it says, and the pharaoh did not remember Joseph and his people, which means that this pharaoh has no idea why these people are in his land, but sees an extreme opportunity to kind of boost things up. So he goes, hey, we've got this whole crew of outsiders, displaced people. Pay attention to that. That's going to be a theme throughout all this morning. Displaced people who are foreigners in a strange land. What can we do with them that will benefit us? And so they begin to force labor upon them, and that labor becomes slavery. And before you know it, we're generations into slavery for the entire nation of Israel. 
And then, as we go through the book, we, we encounter this, this character, this man named Moses. And Moses has this whole beautiful story of being placed on a river and then found by Pharaoh's family and then raised sort of as a royal member. And then he goes through some real tough times, ends up killing someone, and flees and goes out into the wilderness. And God finds him there in a burning bush. And here's what's really crazy about this passage. As you read that passage, you don't read that God was shouting at him. That God was like, hey, over here, like in the burning bush. What you read is that Moses stays at the bush long enough to understand that it's burning, but it's not burning up. That it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. How long, if I had a, a really dry desert bush right here, would it take if I took a lighter and lit that bush for that thing to just go whoosh, in flames, right? Not long at all. So what the curious part about the story is is that Moses actually approaches this bush in curiosity and stays long enough to actually figure out that something greater is going on, and that is when God speaks. And when God speaks to Moses, God's directive is not, hey, so I have this plan. I want you to build this church, and I want you to build this building right here, and I want you to invite all these people into it. No, his plan, when he comes in proximity with the divine, with God, is that I want to send you to free my people. His plan is liberation. So pay attention and hold on to this one just for the end. Whenever somebody comes into the proximity of God, whenever someone comes to the proximity of Christ, freedom is always what is going to follow. Freedom. When we actually encounter the living Christ, when we encounter God, he's going to push us towards liberation. He's going to push us towards freedom. That is the ever-moving love of God, and that is where it's always headed. So Moses goes back, and there's a whole fancy movie about it. You can watch it, and, and there's all these plagues, and, and by the end of it, they bring them out of slavery and into freedom. And here's the thing. This is new. This is very new. And what we know from like psychology and everything now and trauma and all of that stuff, imagine if you have a group of people who have been enslaved for generations and generations and generations, and then all of a sudden you bring them out of that and they're completely free. Now, they have Moses as a quote-unquote leader, but there's no real design leadership. It's just they're following this God and they brought him this far, but they don't know how to live as free people. Free people. This is a totally new idea. So what God does and understands is this group is going to have an incredibly hard time grasping to this idea of freedom because they're traumatized. They're carrying generations worth of pain, of being less than human. Suddenly, not only are you human, but I'm going to bring you into this promised land and you're going to thrive. But before they get there, they kind of have to learn to operate as free people, as actual humans that have been given back their dignity. So God does this really interesting thing where he goes, okay, what causes slavery? And what's really interesting is that the whole reason that Israel ends up enslaved isn't actually just because of racial things or anything like that. They were indebted to Egypt to the point that slavery was the only option. Here's how things worked in the ancient world. If you had a massive plot of land, which a lot of people did, land ownership was a huge deal, uh, and famine hit, and you couldn't grow crops on your land to sell, or you couldn't raise your livestock, or you couldn't pay your bills or make ends meet, you would go and you would basically barter that land to someone, and they would either give you a loan on that, or they would buy that land from you, and you would have money for the time being. But here's the deal. What happens when you don't have land? Now I have to work on someone else's land. And then what happens if I can't make ends meet and I don't have the land that I had before? Now I only have my servitude 
to offer, my labor, my time. But then if I can't make that work, what else do I have but my life? I have to give away my life because I can't afford to live. And at least as a slave, I'll have food and shelter. And so this gradual thing happens, and Egypt ends up enslaving this whole nation of Israel. So now that they're free, God recognizes, look, they know slavery. They're not questioning it. Here's what's really interesting. The people aren't questioning slavery because that's a part of ancient life. But the God who created us all is. It's God who's questioning slavery, going, this does not look right. This will not stand. And so he goes, I have to do everything in my power to teach these people to never fall back into this rhythm again, to never use this option again. And so what he does is he gives them this set of rules, this code, and he says, you guys are going to be a nation that isn't known for their strong kings, for, for their crops, for their money, for their power, for their wealth, for their fame. You're going to be known as a nation that does things differently because you follow me, that does things differently because you follow me. And so he gives them all these codes and these rules, and you can read these books called Deuteronomy and Leviticus, in which it's just rule, 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 rule. But most importantly, we have 10 commandments that are handed down. And those 10 commandments are basically rules for a better life. We often view them as about like sin, shame, sex, guilt, all of that stuff. But these are rules to help your life grow. If you follow these rules, you're going to live a better society. Things are going to be better for you. If you refuse to take human life, things are going to be better for you. If you refuse to steal your neighbor's ox, things are going to be better for you. It's just, it's going to be better if you're able to follow the rules. And what's really, really important about this is that concept of sin in almost every single language, including the languages that the Bible was written in, sin is exactly the same word as debt. Debt and sin are almost interchangeable terms. And here's what happens. They understood that if they held on to a system of debt, just like they had been in the ancient Near East, then slavery would pop up again, right? If you're indebted too much, you're going to have to sell yourself into slavery, and that's going to pop up again. It's the end result of debt. So debt and sin are interchangeable. So next time someone says someone, so-and-so is living in sin, ask them if they have a mortgage or a student loan. It's the same <laughs> deal. So they understand if... if if this debt thing is still real, we're going to have slavery. So they set up the Ten Commandments, and if you look at this, it's so, so fascinating. Let's take a couple of them. Uh, let's see. Like, uh, do not covet your neighbor's wife, right? That's in there. And that looks pretty black and white, right? There's some, there's some sexual stuff in there. There's some uh, jealousy stuff in there. Uh, but actually, do not covet your neighbor's wife comes from an ancient practice that if you had to sell yourself into slavery, the other options before that were I can sell my land, and then I can sell my indentured servants or slaves. And then, because this is a patriarchal, awful society, I can then sell my wife into slavery. So do not covet your neighbor's wife is not just a warning to not covet or to not go for that. It's to say, don't, when that option comes on the table, don't go for that. Don't even let it be a thought in your mind, even if you're the one on the other side of the table offering help. And do not steal. Steal actually had a really, really important thing. It wasn't just your neighbor's ox. It was also if you were to foreclose on someone's property and not give them basic dignity or human rights, that was known as stealing, right? So there's all of these setups in the Ten Commandments that are basically keeping people from a debt system that could enslave them or, most importantly, displace them. 
Because if they're, they're in this new promised land that God wants for them, debt and slavery and all of this is only going to lead to displacement. You are not going to be in the space that I wish you to be. And you're not going to be fully human unless you can follow these rules and stay on track. But obviously, like, we're going to find loopholes. We're humans, right? So we're going to find a way to get debt back into the system. So God sets up another thing, which is kind of like the trump card of all trump cards, and it's this thing called jubilation. Jubilation is a fun word, and it sounds like Christmas. But jubilation <laughs> is this idea that uh, at the end of every 50 years, 49 years, 7 times 7, you would release all debts and all debts to be paid. They were just wiped clean. Jubilation basically means a, a slate wiped clean. And what that would do was it would prevent wealthy landowners from trying to overextend themselves or grant too much to someone because they knew at the end of 50 years, I'm going to have to just let go of this loan anyway. So I'll only give enough so that we won't get that far down the line and we won't get in trouble. And then on the other side, if you needed help, you would only ask for as much as they could possibly give you. So it created this like buffer system so that we couldn't get too far in debt, and then we couldn't get in slavery, and then we couldn't get displacement. But then along come these tricksy little men named the Pharisees. And we talk about them a lot. But uh, these guys figured out a loophole. A guy who's like the head Pharisee, his name is Hillel. And actually, this, this rabbi Hillel is where we get a lot of modern Judaism from. He had a lot of beautiful teachings. This one happens to be not so beautiful. Basically, what he figured out is this thing called the Prospol. And they signed this agreement that basically said, we want to make it so that wealthy people can be protected against having to just wipe that slate clean at the end of jubilation. But the only way we can do that is if we get the other people on the other side to sign away their rights to that. So basically to say, I want a bigger loan, I want more money, I need more, so I will sign away and waive my right to jubilation. So at the end of that, I'm still held to this. And there was a very specific reason that they were doing that, and that was basically because if they could get people back into indentured servitude, right, in the time around Jesus's era, then if they were indentured servitude and they were essentially slaves to someone else, they were not citizens and they could not pay taxes to Rome, and they could not serve in Roman armies. So all of a sudden, you have the Pharisees figuring out a way to try and beat Rome at their own game. We'll tax people. We'll keep them down so that we have a select group that's owning all the land, and we can control at least what's ours, and our temple, our holy city, will be safe. But as Jesus comes on the scene, he goes, he looks one minute at that, and he says, this is sin. This is what sin looks like not caring for people and giving them the dignity as human beings. And so when he preaches his first sermon in the book of Luke, he opens up the scroll and he says, now is the year of our Lord, which the year of our Lord is jubilation. So basically what he's declaring is, we're going to go back to this system where debt is not going to hold people down, where slavery is not an option and where displacement is not an option. And those Pharisees and those people, they got so riled up about this idea that he almost got thrown off of a cliff. So often when I'm talking to fellow young pastors, I'm like, did your first sermon go well? Because his went worse. So that <laughs> is the idea, right? Jesus comes to proclaim, no, this is now jubilation, and we're not going to adhere to these rules that keep breaking people down. We're going to proclaim dignity on human life, and we're going to love people, and we're going to forgive them their debts as they forgive ours. This whole idea of redemption 
comes from this idea of debt cancellation and jubilation and freedom. Jesus is saying we're not going to get to the point of indentured servitude or displacement or slavery because we're going to put the proper things in place, which is forgiveness. Forgiveness will keep people out of that kind of predicament. And think about that and just in your daily lives. You don't have to be in massive amounts of debt or you don't have to be physically enslaved to be a slave to something because you refuse to believe that you're not forgiven or that you are forgiven. We're all sort of enslaved to something. And it doesn't have to look physical. It doesn't have to look, we can't touch it, but we're all enslaved in some kind of a way. And this idea of jubilation says it's built into the story even before Christ shows up on the scene, that your slate is wiped clean. And so we see all this language in the scripture of your, your, your debts being paid, all of this kind of stuff. It says, you are free. But I'd like to argue this morning, I mean, July 4th is next weekend, so I'm going to have to come up with a different sermon, but I've been holding on to this for a while. There is a responsibility to freedom. When you're free, you actually have to tell the truth about the space that you're in. You have to take responsibility for your own life, and you have to care for others. And so what God is trying to do in this Ten Commandments scenario with Moses and this, this nation is to try and teach them that there's a responsibility to freedom. If you're free, you're in the business of freedom. You're in the business of liberation. So now you are called to create freedom everywhere you go. You are called, if you're paying attention enough to see the bush burning, if you linger long enough to hear the voice, you're called to liberation when you come in proximity with the living God. That's what this whole story is about. And so when we see the crisis of refugees and we see the crisis that's happening on our border, and then you remember our nation's history of slavery and oppression and all of this stuff, we kind of have to realize that you can use this book to keep people in that realm, which all too often is the case, or we can use this book, this faith, this God that we follow to actually push us more towards freedom and more towards liberation, which comes with the responsibility of freedom, which comes with the responsibility of saying, I will be here for these people. I will help. Here's some um, shocking facts for you this morning. Uh, there are 65.6 million refugees people displaced, some in their own countries and some on the fringes in, in other countries. But 65.6 million people are living displaced. And here's where the responsibility comes in. This is not, this is not political. This is not anything like that. Here's, here's where this should pull at your heartstrings and something should change. 53% of those are kids. So if you cut that number in half, there's almost 33 million children living displaced in the world today. And to give you an even more shocking statistic, there are 39 million people in California. So think about that. Almost the population of our entire state, children are living displaced. In the lectionary this week, this was our psalm. We have that, um, that first, it says, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. I love this idea of, of the Lord as a refuge. So a refugee is anyone that is being oppressed or displaced by a larger power than themselves. That's sort of the loose definition of a refugee. And God, as ultimate power, chooses to be a refuge. And that should speak to us. God, in all of his mighty power, chooses 
to be a refuge, to be a shelter, to be a home for those that are oppressed. The Lord is a refuge. There are two poems that I wanted to read that kind of describe this to me. Uh, as, we, as we look at these numbers, I don't know about you, but like I'll get these push notifications or I'll watch the news or I'll see it, and it's just not real, right? It just looks so abstract and so crazy that how could this possibly be real? And we get overwhelmed by that. And so what happens when we get overwhelmed is we kind of go like, I'm just not going to think about that. I'm going to push that off to the side. And that's a defense mechanism. That's wired to keep you healthy. And saying, like, I don't want to linger on this sad truth for all that much longer, but we forget when we see numbers like 65 million that, that that's not just a statistic or a number. Um, I have a favorite poet named Patrick O'Toole. He's an Irishman, and he talks like this, and he's very slow. But he, uh, he does this poem. He, he runs a, um, a center called Coromelia, which uh, was in Northern Ireland at the time of the Troubles, and he would create a space for Catholics and Protestants to come together and to kind of see their humanity and to talk things out, and talk things out, not fight things out, not, not bomb each other, but actually talk and create meaningful conversations. And he has a poem where he talks about the dignity of human life, and he says, when I was a child, I learned to count. One, two, three. But now in the face of tragedy and human lives being lost, I've learned to count again. One, one. And there's another poet uh, by the name of Weissen Shire. And you might have seen this one floating around, because this is kind of the biggest one. But it says, nobody puts their child in a boat unless the water is safer than the land that they were on. And that reminded me of another lectionary text that we had this week. And this is called Jesus Calms the Storm. It says, Jesus calms the storm. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Jesus is taking a classy nap. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Now, I want you to see something here. He does not rebuke them. And they're the ones screaming at him. They're the ones not trusting him. They're the ones going, don't you even care if we drown? What Jesus does is he rebukes the powers that be that could drown them and says, be still and quiet. He doesn't blame or mistrust. Sometimes the best response to atrocities and awful things that are happening is that call. Don't you even care, God? And often we'll get an answer that looks like, be still, be quiet. This verse actually goes all the way back. It's an echo of a previous verse that Moses does as he's about to part the Red Sea, and the whole nation of Israel is scrambling, and they're freaking out because there's an army coming after them. And Moses turns around and he says, if you would only be still, the Lord your God will fight for you. If you only be still. So actually, in the Christian tradition, in the grand tradition of everything, we're called to imitate Christ. We're actually called to live as closely to Jesus as we can. We, kinda, we recognize right off the bat that that's not entirely possible. But we're called to live about as close as we can to the life of Jesus. 
And what I would say is that there are 65 million voices screaming, God, don't you care? But there is a power bigger, and that's a lot of us in this room. And so if we're going to imitate Christ and we're actually going to walk like Jesus, then we're actually called to climb in the boat and declare, be still. The biblical call is to be in the boat. And I'm sorry we've gotten very heavy this morning. I don't know how to turn this one around. <laughs> but the biblical call is to be in the boat. So we see this, and we see all these statistics, and we get really depressed, and, and, and we're in this moment here together. How do you even begin? Like, it's not like I'm going to solve this problem today, right? The, the lectionary is good at many things. It's not going to solve the world refugee crisis. It's not going to solve what's happening on our borders. But the answer is we need a radical shift, but it doesn't have to start all that large at all. In fact, it can start very, very small. It can start with that first step, that first leap, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, but to, to actually talk about how we're going to tackle an issue this large, we have to talk about my fear of bees. So bees are the scariest thing in the world to me. I'm very allergic to bees. I discovered this uh, when I was very young. One bit me on the lip on a playground, and my entire face just like blew up like a balloon. So I've always had this like very cautious relationship uh, with bees. Uh, my dog has the same cautious relationship with bees because he ate one once, and it's like it was like a firecracker going off. So anyway, we have a very cautious relationship with bees, and. Uh, so let's rewind. I'm in high school. I've just graduated from high school. I work an entire year uh, selling musical equipment in a music shop, uh, going to like college, but like primarily focusing on selling music equipment because that was a paycheck and I liked that. So I was selling stuff and, uh, and I saved up enough money. All throughout high school, I drove a Mercury Villager, which you don't know what that is. That is a Mercury minivan. And check, if you ever see a Mercury Villager, you will see they never have all their hubcaps. I don't care if they're brand new. There's not a single Mercury Villager on the road that has all its hubcaps. So driving this minivan, and I've taken years of abuse, years of people going, oh, that's the kid that drives the minivan. So my goal is to get some wheels and to get some cool wheels. And my version of a dream car isn't most people's version of a dream car. I wanted a 1983 Saab convertible that was a, a, a turbo. They look like a hat, so it's kind of white. <laughs> I like that. So uh, I, I had finally gotten my hands through Craigslist on, on a person that was going to sell this car. And I went and I met with them. And it turned out that uh, they went to uh, a neighboring church, and they knew my dad. And so I was like, yes, this is going to happen. Lay on the Christian guilt hard and get a discount. So <laughs> we went through the whole process, and they came down on the price. And I was able to spend literally all the money that was in my bank account to buy this car. I was so proud. I was so stoked. And they told me two things. They said, one, it doesn't have a radio. I was like, cool. I will buy that. And, like, and then the brakes are going to need to get fixed. And I was like, that can wait. So I got the radio, <laughs> put it in the car, and, uh, and I'm jamming, and I'm riding down the street. Uh, and uh, and my, there's a friend in the car with me. Um, and, uh, and all of a sudden, she rolled out in the window, and a, a bee flies in uh, to the vehicle. Now, I'm like, stay calm. And I've gotten, gotten kind of cocky over the years. Like, bees aren't going to sting me anymore. So I kind of wave the bee out the window, thinking that if I move my arm fast enough, he will probably get out of there. But it only enraged this bee to the point that he was like now just hovering around my space and around my head, and I'm literally about to have a panic attack because I'm like, if this thing stings me as I'm driving my car, I'm going to blow up like a balloon. I don't know. We might not survive this. So I'm trying my best to get this bee out of the car, get the bee out, 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 rolling down the window, rolling up the window, rolling down the other window, trying to get a crosswind, anything I can do. And then all of a sudden, I finally just smack the bee. 
epically bad decision. That bee got so angry that it came flying at me like a vengeance, and it bit me square between the eyes, or it stung me. It just went boom. And at that, I realized the brakes on this car truly do not work. And I pressed them down as hard as I could, and an oncoming bus comes like this, and I land right in the back of the bus, and because this car is shaped like a hat, the front of the car went right under the bus, and the bus looked completely fine, but it peeled back my hood like a banana. And basically, when the, when the cop arrived to come and take a look, and then we got it towed, and they, they did all their stuff, they're like, it's towed. This car won't drive again. It's too old, it was already too old, like, sorry, you're done. And I had to go walk back in shame to the Mercury Villager, in which I spent another year of my life. So, I tell you this story, because a bee is not a big thing. And yet, it can drive extreme amounts of perilous fear to me, right? It's tiny. It's this insignificant little thing. I know we're supposed to be nice to bees. They're disappearing. I get that. Another sermon, different time. Right now, we hate them. They're, they're <laughs> tiny, and they're awful, and they're scary. We only think that because they have the power to sting. And here's the interesting thing about a bee. A bee, if it stings a mammal or a human being, and not other insects, if it stings another insect, it'll be fine, but if it stings a mammal, its stinger will actually get stuck, and that pulls out a piece of its abdomen, and so the bee will actually die after it uses its stinger to help protect itself. So at least that bee died. Anyway, that bee <laughs> will have to perish, but it uses everything it's got because it needs to protect itself, because it needs to make a change because it says, no, you will fear me even though I'm this big. The other lectionary text we had this week with David and Goliath, and I think of that story of this little boy that takes on a giant with a stone. And he walks in and he's willing to have it cost everything. But he realizes I can do more with this little sting than I can with a giant sword or a big rah-rah or an army. Each of us has the opportunity to cash in on our privilege, on our abilities, and to use our stingers. And it may cost us everything, but that is what it's going to take to tackle something like this. It's going to take us actually using everything we have. And you may think you're small, you may think you're insignificant, but you are just as terrifying as that little bee to the powers that be, to the systems, to everything. We have the power to shift things, and we have to start believing in ourselves to do that. We can do great things if we only choose to step in. And there's this other story in the scripture, this one wasn't on the lectionary, so this is a bonus, um, of one man who actually did this to the full degree. He's a guy by the name of Matthew, and he was a tax collector. And so the story goes like this. Jesus is walking along the road, and he sees Matthew sitting at his tax collecting booth. And this is very interesting. Jesus, whenever he calls a disciple or a follower, often finds them in their career or their place of business. When he finds the disciples, they're fishing. They're fishermen. And he finds them on their boat, and he calls them out. This is just a short little tangent. But basically, when Jesus comes into someone's proximity, he asks them to transcend their career, which is a message we could all use big time. But anyway, so he finds them at the tax collector booth, and he says, follow me. And not only does Matthew follow him, but then Matthew decides to invite Jesus over to his house and to sit Jesus at his table. Uh, and the way that the scripture describes it is that the, Pharise the Pharisees get so mad because they're like, why would he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would he do that? And we've covered that verse 
like a thousand times over in the idea that like Jesus would go and sit with that camp and he would sit with the other ones. But the whole weird part about this is if you look at that from a different angle, so not just like you've got tax collectors who were like quote-unquote sinful people, awful people, taxing people into oblivion, but you have him sitting with sinners. So those aren't people that are actually just like him. Sinners would have been people also who were in debt. So you have Matthew, the tax collector, who's now hosting a jubilee meal, a jubilation in his home with the very people he had been taxing and placed them in the role of sinners. This meal is actually a miracle. When we talk about like the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus and says, what's it going to take for me to get a spot in heaven? And Jesus says, sell everything you have and come follow me. We focus too much on that story and the fact that the rich ruler, young ruler couldn't do it. This is an example of someone actually doing it. Matthew says, yes, and he cashes in on his privilege, and he says, I will follow you with everything, and I will invite the people that I have hurt, that I have robbed. I'll invite them in. About four years ago, uh, we lived in a different apartment, and it had this really big balcony. I used to call this apartment the Embassy Suites, because uh, essentially you could just do a 360. That was the whole apartment. So you'd come in, um, and the apartment's tiny, but for some reason, they had this massive balcony. And I always used to think, like, that could have, you could have extended that living room. I could have been much happier. But anyway, just this massive balcony. Uh, and the first year we lived there, it was fine. They had just kind of uh, redone it and stuff. But then uh, we began to notice this, like, soft spot in the corner of the balcony. And every time you'd stand there, it would kind of go like, and you're like, I'm playing with my life right now. Um, and it was bending. It was, it was bending. And then it actually got to the point where it started to like kind of fold inward, and it looked like the, the plywood underneath was rotten, and so it was kind of spreading. And then we live in Santa Monica, so there's obviously like some termite damage and stuff happening too. So all of a sudden, we knew that there was one safe space on the balcony that you could stand, but the rest of the balcony was kind of like risky. So you didn't, you didn't go over there. Uh, my father-in-law is a landlord. Um, and he's one of those people that will take action. And so he kept on asking me, hey, have you gotten that balcony fixed yet? And I'd be like, oh, no, I'm going to get around to it. Just like I'm not, I'm not that kind of person. So uh, I'll get around to it someday, someday. Um, hopefully we won't fall through, but I'll get around to it. And he's like, did you fix the balcony yet? And I was like, no, not yet, not yet. This has come up, this has come up. I just don't want to have to deal with the hassle of them coming over. So one night he's over uh, for dinner, and he walks out onto my balcony, um, and he thinks that I'm not watching, but I see out of the corner of my eye, and I just see him go like this. Like there's the balcony, and he just goes... Boom! <laughs> and he breaks the whole balcony. And then he comes back in with this whole dramatic routine of, I almost fell through the balcony. Call the, your landlord and say that your father-in-law almost fell through the balcony and I'm going to sue. He'll say, we got that balcony fixed, right? That was the moment. What happened this week with everything that happened on our southern border and the border of Mexico and the separation of families and children, what happened for the first time is this crisis actually came in proximity with us. For the first time, we actually had to sit with it, let it eat away at us, and because of that, we did something. Oftentimes, the only thing that's going to cause us to be more loving, more appreciative, more like Jesus, is that something's got to break. Something's got to make us uncomfortable. Something's got to get to the point where it no longer works. And then finally, we just go, enough is enough. We have to fix this. Maybe the whole point of our brokenness is that it actually leads us towards wanting to be whole, wanting to be restored. Maybe the whole point of brokenness is that that's what drives us forward the most. When your heart breaks, 
when it actually breaks about something, it will move you towards redemption. It will move you towards solving that. May our hearts choose to break for what we see around us. May we be the type of people that don't shy away from this conversation because it makes us uncomfortable. May we live lives dangerous enough for our hearts to be broken so that we can begin to move forward, that we can begin to love people, that we can begin to seek redemption, and we can believe in this grand thing called jubilation. Let's pray together.